What were you made for? What's your purpose? Why did God make you and put you on the earth? All right, let's start with the word of God. I want you to hear what the Lord says in answer to that question. He says, he made you, he chose you for this reason, that the people I formed for myself may proclaim my praise. I made them for me, that they would worship me. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God, through his will, his power, his desire, is orchestrating all things, both now and forever, for this reason, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. So the answer to the question what you were made for is you were made to worship. You were made to worship. Took Deacon on a bike ride yesterday. He's five years old. He rode 10 miles. He just kept wanting to go, didn't want to stop. And at the end, I was like, buddy, why did we ride so far? And he looked at me and he said, have brothers ever ridden 10 miles? <laughs> he wanted to know, had he gone farther than them? While we were riding, he looked at me and he said, Daddy, who do you think's faster on their bike, me or you? Okay, why is that impulse inside of him at five years old to know who's the best? Who's the best? I mean, that impulse is there with us when we're young, when we're on the school blacktop playing basketball at recess. It's there today. If you watch ESPN, you'll know that half of every ESPN broadcast is dedicated to the question of who is the greatest of all time, or who's the GOAT, the greatest of all time. If it's basketball, football, swimming, track, it doesn't matter the sport, the debate is endless, who's the greatest of all time. Why, think about it with me, why is that impulse written on the human heart? Why? To figure out who's actually the best. We studied worship together as a church over a year ago as we were expanding our worship offerings here at Highland. And at the time I gave you this definition for what worship is. So let me throw that back up on the screen. This is what worship is. Worship is giving glory to the one, and that's important, who's worthy of it. So biblically speaking, the response to that impulse that rises up in you to identify and name who the greatest is, biblically speaking, there's just one who rises up above everybody else, and it's God the Father. Okay? And what we're told is that God the Father made you and hardwired that impulse into you so that you would seek him and worship him as the greatest. So that's our definition. Look at Psalm 29, verse 1. I gave you a bunch of passages over a year ago that kind of point to that definition. Let me just give you one for time's sake. Look at this. Two parallel statements, so they're saying the same thing in different words. Ascribe or give to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. What's he saying? What worship is, is to give the only one who's worthy or due or holy, unlike everybody else, glory. That's what worship is. Yeah, you see it. So the reason that you live, the reason that you were made by God and chosen by God 
to be his person is so that your life would be worship to him, the greatest. Paul puts it like this in Romans 12, verse 1. Look at this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what he's done for us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What's he saying? Okay, because of what Christ Jesus has done for you, what you should do more than anything else is make your whole life worship to God. Your whole life about giving him glory, giving him honor, giving him respect, your whole life, everything you do is about that. In this building block series where we're talking about the basics from prayer to reading scripture, giving, joining the family of Christ, making disciples, all of those things fall under the category of worship to the one who's worthy. And we'll talk about those others in the coming weeks. I wanna focus on one dimension of worship this morning though. Okay, up until this point, worship is giving glory to the one who's worthy. Christian worship sounds like the worship of every other world religion. Okay, that is, there's a God and you were made to honor, respect, and glorify that God, that's your purpose. That's every religion, that's religion 101, okay? You might think about it like a, like a workplace flow chart at some big Fortune 500 company. Let's say you work for that company. And the boss of this company, he's some tycoon. He seems like a really great guy. Maybe he's really generous, does a lot of philanthropy, seems like a good guy. He leads the company and you work for him, but you're way down on the totem pole. You've never actually met this guy, okay? But you do your job. You do what's written in your job description, you show up for work and you do a good job and because you do a good job and the person in the cubicle next to you does a good job. The tycoon, the guy who runs the company, his respect and honor and glory in the world grows because the company's doing better and better and better. And so you do your job, but you never meet that guy. He gives you a Christmas bonus. Maybe you send him a Christmas card, but y'all don't interact. He seems like a good guy. What do you do? You, you respect him. You're obedient. All right. Up until this point, that's what Christianity sounds like. Christianity sounds like you worship God by obeying him, respecting him, and working hard for him. And let me just caveat, the world would be a better place if everybody did that. All right. But Christian worship is different. And what's the difference? Well, let me show you this. Look what Jesus says. He's asked what's the most important thing, and Jesus says this. This is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, this is the difference between Christian worship and every other kind, is that our God desires not only your respect, but your desire. That's the difference. Not only your obedience, but your love and affection, your heart. Look at this in Isaiah 29, look what he says. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but look at this, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. 
The difference when it comes to the Christian worship that you were made for is that God wants your heart. He wants your desire. Okay, here's the problem. Here's the problem. This is the part where you shrug and you say, okay, I would love to love God more. I would love if he had more of my heart. But you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Who can control the heart? Man, I can't figure that thing out. Heart wants what the heart wants, right? Wrong, I think. I think wrong. Let me give you two examples. Uh, For the first 30 years of my life, I hated coffee. I hated coffee. I don't think there's anybody in here in the room that would say the first time you tasted black coffee, you thought, this is amazing. I doubt it. I doubt there's anybody in the room. My middle son, Foster, he's eight years old. He loves coffee. And what he means by that is he loves coffee that's about nine-tenths creamer in one-tenth coffee. That's what he really loves. I don't think anybody's made loving coffee. I'm in my early 30s. I just looked around at all the mature people around me, and I thought, it's time I start drinking coffee. Like something's wrong with me. Everybody else drinks coffee. So I started making myself, I started making myself drink a cup of coffee every morning, every morning. And now I go to bed at night thinking about how I can't wake up to, for my cup of coffee in the morning. You know that feeling? How many of you have looked over at your spouse and say, I can't wait for coffee tomorrow? <laughs> right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, what do we learn? Okay, our heart is not actually in control, that our heart follows our habits and our bodies. That's the thing about coffee. There's something just magical about it now. It's like holding the warm mug in both of my hands, smelling it as I drink it. You know, it's, something, it's embodied, okay? So it's not only the habit of making myself drink coffee every day, but it's also something happening physically inside my body. It's the same with falling in love. I don't believe there's such a thing as love at first sight. I'll tell you from the first time I saw Lindsay, there's such a thing as like at first sight. There's such a thing. But how do we fall in love? Well, we fell in love by spending time together. I would go to her dorm and pick her up and we would go to dinner and we would, after curfew at Abilene Christian University, the awesome thing about a Christian university, curfew, after curfew, we would talk on the phone for hours. Like, what's happening? How are we falling in love? Well, it's the habits. It's spending time together. And it's also about the body. You know, I remember the first time we held hands, the first time we kissed. Those of you who are married know that part of marriage, what binds the heart are even deeper levels of physical intimacy. Okay, this is one of the reasons we fight for purity and integrity. Why? Because the heart, okay, follows the body and the habits of our lives. Okay, so let me show you this in Colossians 3. If it's true that the heart is connected to our habits and our body, look at this, Colossians 3, 1 to 2. Since then, You have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Look at that. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. 
Okay, soak that in for a second. Set your hearts. Because of what Christ has done for you, set your heart. All right, let me show you this. Let's go to the next slide. The popular excuse is that the heart wants what the heart wants. And the gospel instruction is no, you set your heart. Put your heart someplace. Control your heart and make sure it's there. And where's there? With Jesus. Set your heart with him. Okay, but the challenge is, I understand that the habits of my heart control my heart. But what about the body? I don't get to hold Jesus's hand, right? It's different. Do you remember during COVID, uh, these videos that emerged from Europe where the COVID quarantine was much more strict than it was in America? You remember this? I looked up some of these videos as I was working on this sermon. Most of them were from Italy where uh, people live in these homes and these kind of tight city streets. Each home has a balcony. And maybe you saw some of those videos where people would come out on their balcony and they would sing together. Do you remember this? You saw some of those videos? Okay, why are they singing together? Well, it's because they can't touch each other, right? And they're desiring a connection. What kind of connection? A connection of the heart. And so in the absence of touch, what do they do? They sing. All right, why is that impulse there? Look a few verses later in Colossians 3. Look, Look at this. Look what he says. He's still talking about the heart. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom. How? Through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. He goes on, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So look at this. He starts the chapter by saying, hey, you, get in the driver's seat of your heart and make sure the Lord has it. And you reply, how in the world do I do that? And he says, this is how. You sing, you sing, that's how you do it. Uh, I was reading an interesting article from Christianity Today a few weeks ago, and it was about this guy, he's a sociologist, his name's Randall Collins. So he's studying what makes humans tick, what motivates him. His theory is that every human is after what he calls emotional energy. So emotional energy is the thing that motivates you to do something bold, Um, It motivates you to love. It gives you feelings of peace and comfort when you're afraid. That's emotional energy. And the thing about emotional energy is if we hook your brain up to scanners, we can actually measure it. There's a chemical that's associated with emotional energy. It's called oxytocin. And so you feel better when you have more oxytocin. And he said there's two things that produce more oxytocin in your brain than almost anything else. Physical touch and get this singing. You know, they measured the levels of oxytocin for choir groups after they sing together and they match up with somebody who's been physically intimate with somebody else. Is that something? Hey, do you think that's accidental? That God designs us for a way for our heart to connect with him when holding hands isn't quite as easy. Are you with me? Are you with me? Is that something? 
Listen, I, uh, 111 AD, uh, uh, Governor Pliny, he's a Roman governor, he's trying to figure out who these Christians are, and he's writing to Emperor Trajan. He says, it's the weirdest thing. Every time the Christians come together, all my spies tell me, every time the Christians come together, they come together, and you know what they do? They sing. They sing every time. It's so weird. Listen, I will, I will testify that I know music has the power to control our hearts and to locate and shape and change the desires and affections of our heart. When I was in high school, I started listening to country music. Started listening to country music, Garth Brooks, uh, George Strait, Brooks and Dunn. And um, it was so weird. At the same time, I started wearing cowboy boots. I started going mudding in my truck and my dad was so mad at me for that. Okay, why? Why did I do that? Because I was listening to music about mud on the tires. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots like I didn't have a choice. Okay, the music I was listening to was completing and shaping my identity. And along those lines, I will say one of the biggest significant changes in my spiritual life over the last few years has been changing my music diet and listening to different music, music that places my heart elsewhere. Every once in a while, I'll still listen to Garth. You know that. There you go. Okay, but you say to yourself, hey, I, I hear singing. I get it, I get it. Christians are supposed to do that, okay. God wants our heart and singing connects our heart to him. I get that, but uh, not me, not me. I, I, don't, I don't sing. Years ago, there was a guy here at Highland and he used to complain to me. He'd say, hey, church is too girly. Church is too girly, he'd say. Now, that's an insulting thing to say on a lot of levels, ladies. But here's what he meant by that. He said, you know, guys, guys don't like to come sit around and sing. What guy likes to just come around and sing? Church is too girly. And that's one of those conversations that ever since he said it, I've thought about all the ways I wish I would have responded to him in that moment. You, do, you don't ever do that, but I do it sometimes. What I wish I had told him is in your Bible, manly man, is a songbook. It's got 150 songs. We call it the book of Psalms. Most of those songs were written by a guy who killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. And so, manly man, when you have killed a lion and a bear, come talk to me about whether singing is manly or not. You know, uh, I wish I'd said that. Maybe he's listening. <laughs> but you say, hey, hey, I'm not good at singing. Me neither. I'm terrible. I led singing for three years at the Cottonwood Church of Christ. You know what they got me for Christmas? A pitch pipe. <laughs> That's what they bought me for Christmas. A pitch pipe. I can't sing either. Listen, God does not care. At least I hope not. If he cares, Brecian's going to have a mansion in heaven and I'm going to live in his pool house up there if he does care. But what Psalm 51 tells us is what God wants is a broken and contrite heart, not a pitch perfect one. That's what he wants. Like, man, let me talk to men especially. If you want to look attractive to your wife, 
sing to the Lord. If she is here, she's here because she wants the Lord to have her heart and she wants a man who wants the Lord to have his heart. Sing, who cares if you're good or not? Don't worry about that. Okay, how do I make singing a better part of my life? I say I want to be really practical in all these sermons. Okay, first off, let me say this. One of the sweetest gifts, strange, weird gifts of the COVID pandemic was online church. I'm so thankful for the gift of online church. Through online church, we're connected with people all over the world. We've got people who are caring for family members or homesick who are still able to connect with us through online church. So I'm thankful for that gift. For those of you who are able, I'd say come to church. If you want singing and worship to be a bigger part of your life, if you want God to have more of your heart, come to church. Why? Because the Lord tells us when we gather together in this place that the Spirit is here in a special way. And that if when we sing is the moment our hearts are given to God, that is also the moment He will come and meet with our hearts because He wants the heart more than anything else. If you want to grow in your singing, listen, come to church. Come to church. And number two, turn on the radio. I mean, you and I are so spoiled. We live in an era with, the, with you know, the snap of your fingers, the click of a button, whether that's on the radio dial in your car or on your phone, where you can listen to a seemingly infinite number of worship songs just like this. Turn on the radio. Turn it on. What about singing by yourself? For the last few years, I've been following this morning devotional guide, and one of the things it does is it challenges me to sing the doxology. Do you know the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I should lead the leading to Bretian, probably. I sing it every morning. Taps my heart into the Lord. You can sing that song, the doxology. Look it up. It's on YouTube. Sing with your kids. How many of you turn the worship songs on with your kids? Do that if you've got kids. There's a young girl here. I think she's about 10 years old. Her parents tell me that she can't go to sleep at night unless they turn on worship music because she's been listening to it since she was in her crib. Right. Okay, what if you're still struggling to worship? Well, one of the things I do is I get my body involved. I get my body involved. First Timothy talks about raising holy hands. And uh, one of the things I've learned is I'm not always feeling it in worship. And so when I raise my hands, it's the strangest thing. It helps me to feel it. It's like doing something with my body cracks, up, cracks open something in my heart. You know, another reason I do it is because my kids are watching. And I want them to see that this manly man is not afraid to worship God because that's what he's made for. If singing is hard for you, lift your hands. Okay. There's so much more I want to say. I, uh, Risha and I got a message this week from a woman here. She, she said lyrics to a song, and it's a song you all know. She said, I need this song right now. And I was struck by that. I need this song. Because music speaks to the heart. And music helps the heart connect with the Lord. And you might be feeling to yourself, hey, if I felt it more, I would worship more. And what I want you to hear is, if you would worship more, you would feel it more. Your heart will follow 
your voice if you'll lift it to him. If you ask me what Christians do, I tell you Christians sing. They sing. Let me pray over you. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you draw our hearts to you? May this week be a week where we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Worship to you, Lord. And may you receive it and be glorified because you alone are worthy and you alone are above all else. We praise your holy name. And we pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.